Thank you for joining us for another Hagley History Hangout. My name is Gregory Hargreaves, Assistant Director of the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware. Now, you know, during these History Hangouts, we like to bring you some of the great work being done by scholars who have received support from the Hagley Center in the form of research grants and fellowships of different kinds. One such scholar joins me today. Richard Pop is Associate Professor at the University of Wisconsin at Milwaukee. Rick, thanks for joining me today. Hi, Greg. Thanks for having me on. Oh, you're welcome. Let's start by painting with broad strokes, so to speak. What is it you're researching and writing about these days? So the um, the project is about television in New York City. And what I'm interested in is, is how the two shaped each other, right? How the emergence of the television industry was shaped in, in many ways and the further development of it over the course of the, the mid 20th century was shaped, you know, very much by the city of New York. Uh, and then also how television became kind of an active presence in New York politics, in, um, you know, um, inceptions of New York, uh, the broader meaning of, of the city and the public imagination uh, and so on. So, so really I'm trying to put those two histories in combination, the, the history of New York in the 20th century and the history of broadcasting. Uh, and um, yeah, so that's that's the project really. Well, New York has always been a real center of the broadcast industries in the United States, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, um, I mean, you know, if you, you look at the major corporations, right, that's, uh, you know, really dominated broadcasting, uh, RCA, and of course, you know, it's subsidiary NBC and CBS and, uh, and so on the networks, you know, they were based out of New York. Uh, and then also New York, um, is, is really the first place that had a fully operational, um, television system, right. In the sense of, it was the first place where, you know, you could buy a TV really, turn it on and have a few different stations to watch. Right. Uh, um, and, uh, and then also it's the, it's the first big city to have a, again, like a, you know, kind of a fully operational cable system and so on. And so uh, in a lot of ways, it's, it's the first place where people could experience TV in the way that would become, you know, I guess, typical and taken for granted um, not too long after, you know, across the country more generally. Mm -hmm. Well, when was it that um, you could first purchase a TV and switch it on in New York City and have that early sort of first adopters experience of television? Well, so, um, <clears throat> I mean, a lot of times the, you know, the kind of landmark moment is uh, the 1939 World's Fair, right, mm -hmm. where uh, you have this big mass merchandising push from RCA and General Electric and other big, you know, electronics companies. Uh, and um, you know, even though it was fairly expensive uh, and, you know, would have been you know, fairly difficult to to install and so on, you know, you could go out in the, the spring or summer of 1939 and buy buy a TV set. Uh, but there's people who who bought, um, you know, earlier versions of um, television sets, you know, as as early as the you know late 1920s early 1930s, but there's really not an awful lot that you can watch other than these kind of um, experimental broadcasts, uh, you know, sometimes just as simple as like a, um, you know, uh, a, a toy cat, like swinging its arm back and forth, you know, or paw back and forth, things like that, right? You know, um, there was, 
things going out over the airwaves all throughout the 1930s, you know, um, to test out, you know, different types of television systems, broadcasting systems, and then also to kind of hold the license, right, that was granted mm -hmm. by the, um, by the, I guess at that point, the FRC, later the, the FCC. So, uh, but in terms of, you know, being able to turn on a TV, um, watch, say, two different channels, right? You could do that in 1940 in New York. That's really interesting. And so from a really early point, New York and television are really intimately intertwined. Would you say that's true? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. So, um, I mean, so one of the things I'm, I'm trying to do with this project is to, is to, you know, look at New York as a kind of active agent, right. In the development of TV, right. Mm -hmm. So it's not just mm -hmm. a kind of a setting where these big corporations have their headquarters or where, um, the big, you know, national network studios are, but also to think about New York as, um, this material presence, right? To think about New York as, the, in, in a lot of ways, this giant thing uh, that interacts in funny ways with television, right? Uh, and also with with radio, but more so with television. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, the era that I'm looking at is the era where TV was uh, synonymous with broadcasting for the most part, right? Uh, I do look at the emergence of cable uh, in the later part of the book, but you know, the the period I'm looking at is really, say, the 1920s through the 1970s, right? Hmm. Where, you know, for most people, almost all the time, what TV means is, is, is basically you turn on this, this box, you know, in your house and you, um, you know, you receive broadcast transmissions, right? That provide, you know, news and entertainment and so on, right? And so if you think about um, something like New York, right? In, in terms of the built environment of New York, it's full mm -hmm. of these, hundreds and hundreds of, you know, giant buildings, right? You know, it's full of, you know, surround that island of Manhattan surrounded by these huge bridges and so on. And then you think about a medium like broadcasting, right? Which is premised on the idea that you're going to fling out these, you know, uh, radio transmissions, right? Those two things are not always compatible, right? And so um, New York, has this kind of paradox to it in that it's, you know, in a lot of ways, the most important market uh, in television, right? It's the sort of, you know, in a lot of ways, the kind of capital of, of um, television industry. Uh, but it's also the place where it was most difficult for a lot of people in the audience to get good reception, right? Uh, and oh, I see. Uh -huh. So there's this kind of, um, you know, um, I guess, you know, uh, what would you call it? Like a I want to say dialectical, but it just sounds too, uh, too, too there's egghead. Definitely but, uh, ten, there's definitely tension between these. Yeah, things. exactly. And so, you you, you know, in a, at a couple of key moments in, you know, the development of the TV industry, uh, you, you, you know, you have these tensions. I think that's a good way to put it where, um, you know, uh, difficulties in, you know, trying to broadcast, right, or uh, trying to get good reception and so on lead to these kinds of, technical solutions that then, you know, end up being these, you know, kind of watershed moments in the, in the industry's history. So, um, so yeah, so, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in how broadcasting was, you know, sort of shaped by um, the, the physical characteristics of the modern, you know, kind of skyscraping metropolis. 
Sure. And also um, what immediately comes to mind when you describe your project is that a lot of folks um, who aren't from New York City get their first exposure to the city, are introduced to it visually through the medium of television. Um, I think about uh, well into the uh, uh, late 20th century, early 21st century, my family was still receiving broadcast television on rabbit ear antennas. And um, and uh, the picture, the image of New York was really prominent in those broadcasts, even uh, to that point. Um, so... Uh, I, I see exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, New York, you know, I mean, for reasons that make a lot of sense has has been the setting for, you know, many TV shows. And then also, you know, even though most, um, say, dramatic entertain, uh, you know, television content, um, you know, the center production in the 1950s moves to Los Angeles. But even still, a lot of you know TV programming is produced out of New York, whether it be the, the news, whether it be the morning shows, whether it be, you know, a handful of soap operas or also, um, you know, late night television and so on. Um, programs like Saturday Night Live and so on. I mean, a lot of the um, appeal of those shows and the kind of, you know, personality of those shows is premised on the idea of being in New York, right? Especially something like, uh, and then you have all, you know, there's really probably never been an era where one of the more popular television shows wasn't um, set in New York, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and you can definitely see that in interesting ways in, in, in the late 20th century, right? Where you have, you know, Seinfeld and you have Sex in the City and you have uh, Friends and you have all these programs, right, that are kind of set against this backdrop of uh, New York City. Mm -hmm. And I suppose that has a deeper history. Um, can think of uh, all sorts of examples from your period. Uh, perhaps you could give us one or two. Well, sure. Yeah. So, um there's the, you know, a lot of radio programming, a lot of, you know, popular radio programs were, um, you know, set in New York, uh, fictional programs like the um, Goldbergs and, and, and others. And then also, I, I think probably, you know, um, even more so than that, the fact that, you know, so many uh, of the popular, you know, variety kinds of programs and so on, you know, the more mm -hmm. kind of vaudevillian things uh, were uh, produced in New York. And also, I think, you know, very, you know, something that would have been paramount in the audience's mind is the idea that, you know, New York is the show business capital, right? It's the place mm -hmm. where, you know, mm -hmm. you know, um, if you wanted to see those people live, that's where, you know, they had cut their teeth and so on. And so um, that's another facet of the project that I'm, I'm, I'm interested in is the way that, you know, um, broadcasting, um, you know, at radio and television uh, kind of inherits the, you know, kind of mantle um, that had been established over the, you know, previous half century or so of New York being the, the place where U.S. cultural industries were, um, you know, kind of centered, right? I mean, obviously Hollywood mm -hmm. begins to challenge that by the um, later 1910s and the 1920s, but even still in the, in the 1930s and 1940s, I think, you know, New York was very much considered the place that was like the, um, you know, center for cultural production, the place where the cultural industries were, you know, most deeply embedded and where trends and so on, um, you know, kind of emanated from. Mm -hmm. I can uh, conjure, bring to mind uh, lot, all sorts of radio broadcasts from um, hotel ballrooms in Manhattan or music halls in New York and that are billed very much as, um, you know, a, this, this cultural product coming straight to you wherever you might be from 
New York, this the beating capital of American culture, as it were. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that has a very long history, right? So uh, one of the things that I've been, been working on a lot this summer is, is looking at how the the radio industry in the early 1920s first began to kind of physically manifest itself in Manhattan, right? And mm-hmm. um, the first, you know, commercial radio station around New York uh, is uh, WJZ. And that was one of the, one of the early Westinghouse stations uh, that came directly out of that, those um, experiments they did around Pittsburgh. And so um, what Westinghouse was doing was basically, you know, using its factories and plants, you know, throughout the you know um, eastern part of the country to uh, they, they would set up these studios really quickly. They would, you know, put a transmitter on the top of one of these plants. And uh, so they had a plant in Newark and did this. And this is, you know, um, uh, it gets the, the call letters WJZ. And pretty quickly, you know, they figure out that... Um, you know, Broadway talent is only so willing to, you know, travel out to, you know, this Westinghouse plant, you know, in, in Newark. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, within a few months of operation, they'd already set up a remote studio uh, at the Waldorf Astoria, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Which um, ends up getting demolished, you know, a couple of years later to, to make room for the Empire State Building. Um, and then if you just look at that one side alone, right, uh, the Empire State Building then becomes the, um, you know, basically the thing, right, that RCA puts its experimental television uh, uh, transmitters on, right, and then becomes the host for, you know, well into the, um, until the building of the the World Trade Center, right, that's, that becomes the Empire State Building is where, um, you know, um, television was broadcast from in New York for the most part. So, um, so you know, you can do these interesting things, right. By just taking, you know, one particular site, one particular, you know, plot of land in Manhattan and seeing how, um, um, it's, you know, really, really entangled with, you know, with the development of broadcasting. And yeah, that's fascinating. It makes, uh, New York such a rich subject for your work. Um, it, it does bring to mind how, um, in the early years of the Empire State Building, the owners had trouble um, uh, making payments on their financing. And so one of the big ways that they were able to sort of get uh, make the nut, so to speak, was by leasing the um, rights to put broadcast equipment up on that uh, airship mast up on the top of the building. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's exactly it, you know, and I mean, that remained, I think, you know, very important to the to the building's, you know, finances, you know, well into the the 60s. And so um, there's a big fight that plays out, right? You know, when the plans for the um, World Trade Center, um, you know, what would become the Twin Towers are made public in in the mid 1960s, uh, the Empire State Building um, you know, management, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the, you know, the formal company, right. That runs the Empire State Building. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, they are really at the forefront of this, um, um, coalition that comes together very quickly. That also includes the New York city broadcasters, uh, to fight this design, right. Mm-hmm. To sort of push for a redesign because, um, you know, all their engineers, are telling them that basically it's going to, you know, make these reception issues that are already bad in New York all the worse by creating mm. this, they called a cone of interference because, you know, the signals would, um, 
you know, they would leave the Empire State Building, right? They'd travel south or they'd travel out, you know, radiate in every direction, obviously. But, you know, those that did travel south would then bounce off and then, you know, create uh, this um, ghosting effect, right? Which, which happens when um, when your TV set receives the same signal microseconds apart, right? And, and you end up getting this kind of blurred ghosty kind of image. Uh, and that's something that a lot of folks in New York City kind of dealt with anyway, right? Mm -hmm. Because where they lived and, you know, obstacles around them. But there was this sense that the World Trade Center was going to expand by, you say, you know, by some projections, hundreds of thousands of households, the, you know, the number of people that experienced this ghosting effect. So, um, so yeah, and so, and then in the Empire State Building, they don't want to lose the, um, because the natural solution to that is to then move this, you know, um, these transmitter masts to, you know, this now larger building, right? But then they lose the rent on that. So, um, so yeah, yeah, so you're, you're exactly right. I mean, it's very important, I think, to the finances of, of that building for a long time. Mm -hmm. When you sort of set up the, um, the frame of your project, you briefly mentioned politics and uh, how the politics of the city get entangled with uh, broadcast media, but also then how um, that, of course, because of the influence of New York uh, in the broadcast landscape of the rest of the country, that becomes a bigger political issue, at, perhaps at a national level. Could you parse some of that for us, please? Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, the, I guess the, the approach to the, you know, um, relationship between, you know, New York and, and politics to television uh, that, that I've, I've been most interested in is um, there's a couple of key moments, right? So in, uh, and it might be a kind of a funny way to, you know, define politics. I'm not really thinking so much in terms of like national electoral politics or something like that. But um, there's this really interesting moment that lasts for, you know, probably six or seven years after World War II, right? Where, you know, um, Television's kind of been put into deep freeze, right, during the Second World War in a lot of ways. Uh, there's still broadcasts being, you know, produced and so on uh, in, in a handful of cities. But, um, you know, new television sets really aren't being manufactured for obvious reasons, right, during the Second World War. And then um, once, you know, um, RCA, Westinghouse and others, right, you know, Crossley, these, these, these companies that make TVs, you know, begin to produce televisions again, uh, after the mid 1940s, you know, there's a good number of New Yorkers who go out and buy them, right? By this point in time, there's about three uh, stations that you can tune in. And this is again, where, you know, where like, you know, the sort of uniqueness of New York as, as, as a built environment kind of comes into play. Um, so many people who live in New York, right, live in apartment buildings. And, um, you know, and more so than you know, any other big city, right? Uh, and at this point in time, you know, if you're going to watch television at all, right, you need an, an aerial, you need a rooftop aerial, right? And that's all well and good, right? If you live in a Cape Cod, you know, um, you know, tract home or something like that, right? Uh, but if you live in a, an apartment building, right, that's got, you know, 15 other dwellings in it or, you know, 50 or 100 other dwellings in it, right? Um, then you don't necessarily have the right, 
you know, or the ability to go up to the roof of this apartment building and install an antenna, right? Mm-hmm. But without that, your TV is basically useless, right? And so you have these people in 1947, 1948, who go out and buy this, you know, expensive new um, new thing, right? And are excited about using it and so on. Uh, and then they realize that they can't get good reception, you know, without a rooftop aerial, right? And so, you know, a lot of times if you bought a TV during this period of time, right, the installation of the aerial was part of it. They'd have these aerials installed. You know, a lot of times there'd just be um, uh, an informal agreement with the landlord that it would be okay to put these up there. And then the landlords end up facing this problem of like, okay, well, you're running this building and you've got, you know, 50 tenants in it, right? And now, you know, uh, you know, a couple people at first want to put up these aerials, right? Um, but what do you do when 40 people want to put, you know, you have this, you know, the, the, the language that surrounds this is interesting because they talk about like aluminum forests and so on. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so it's something that becomes unsightly, right. Uh, becomes something of a hazard, especially when these things are kind of, you know, self-installed and so on, uh, and a liability, right. For, for building owners. And also too, they realize in a lot of cases, they just don't have the space, right. To accommodate all of these. So, um, you have these, you have this, you know, kind of flurry of lawsuits, right? Uh, and that's been one of the, um, this is kind of like my first foray into using um, some of the, um, you know, sort of um, in terms of sources using uh, legal cases and so on. But you mm-hmm. have a lot of um, lawsuits, right? Mm-hmm. That's, and this is mostly late 1940s, or early 1950s. It kind of, you know, gets resolved, at least, you know, from a, a legal perspective. Um, by 1952, 1953 or so. Uh, but it raises these really interesting questions over what kinds of, you know, uh, rights renters have, mm-hmm. right? You know, uh, is this a utility basically, right? Is it, is it you know, are you going to find television as a utility? Uh, and so, of course, a, you know, renter would have, you know, um, um, legal rights, you know, uh, to electricity, right, to, you know, water and so on, right, you know, those kinds of systems within a building. So then the question becomes, okay, well, is, you know, something like television going to be defined within that as well, right? And um, there's, you know, differing opinions, right, in the New York courts about this, and some very much side with tenants and say, basically, like this, you know, this, this is, going to become an important part of everyday life, right? Uh, and there is reasonable expectation that somebody who, you know, buys a TV ought to be able to, you know, operate it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that this is important to people's, you know, sort of general sense of a good standard of living, right? Uh, and then there's others who take a, you know, um, I guess a more um, property rights, you know, kind of friendly approach who, who say basically, well, no, you know, like uh, the... The roof of a building belongs to you know the owner of that building right uh, or the and the decisions about you know what can be done on top of it what can be placed on top of it belong to the you know the managers of that building and if they don't want these antennas up there then you know um they don't have to grant access to that so um so in terms of thinking about you know things like the tenants rights movement and so on of the 1940s this is kind of like the sort of like last one of the last gasps of that in some ways um and then there's um, this period in the mid '60s. But before we move on, I'm sorry. But how was that? Res- how was that resolved in the favor of the tenants or the uh, property owners? Well, so these things, you know, they would, um, you know, bounce through the New York, uh, you know, 
city and state, you know, court system. Um, and, you know, it's, it's been, it's been a while since I was kind of deeply immersed in looking at some of these cases. And so my, mm-hmm. you know, sense of it, it was really probably about this time last year where I was reading all these cases. Um, but, um, you know, in, in terms of, you know, to the best of my recollection, um, the, uh, oh, oh, I'm blank. I'm, it's okay. I, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. It, no, no. It may, um, have, may have also worked itself out technically if this was no longer um, a problem of reception inside people's apartments. Well, yeah. I mean, to some degree, and this is another way that you know it becomes you know you know you know interesting to think about the um, you know the the politics of the, one of the terms I've kind of been playing around here with is the politics of reception, right? Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In the sense that uh, one of the solutions to this is you have the development of um, what are called master antenna uh, systems, right? Uh, MATV is is the you know acronym that you usually see. Um, you know all the big, especially say RCA, you know gets started on on trying to develop these in the later part of the '40s, in part because they see what an what an issue this is in cities. But what an MATV is is this you know it's this massive um, kind of you know, universal antenna, right? That you can put on the top of a uh, apartment building and it could provide good reception for up to a hundred or so um dwellings within mm, there right and so it's yeah. a lot of ways it's it's kind of like a little miniature cable television system right you know cable is already being you know introduced at this point in time uh you know into rural areas into mountainous areas right and with cable you have you know a big giant antenna you know generally on you know the biggest hill uh, around right and then you have these wires that are kind of fed out to um you know to service the the households in that area and you then the matv system is you know kind of like the urban equivalent of that right mm. where it's this giant antenna on the top of an apartment building and so um so but those are really expensive right and so um they're generally placed on you know um apartment buildings that have affluent tenants for the mm-hmm. most part, mm-hmm. or they are incorporated into new construction, right? Uh, and so a lot of the, um, you know, big kind of large scale apartment complexes that are built uh, in the later 40s, and especially in the 1950s, include these, and it becomes something that's kind of, you know, sort of um, build, right, in the in the marketing, right, you know, like we have MATV, right, in these mm-hmm. uh, but again, right, you have to be, you know, fairly affluent to move into to a lot of these communities. Mm-hmm. Well, what collections did you dig into in the Hagley archives to help you uncover the story? Well, so the, I mean, the RCA, you know, various collections, you know, um, uh, you know, were in- incredibly helpful. Uh, one of the things I've been, that I was really focused on, you know, in, in the trip I made out there earlier this year was uh, Rockefeller Center, Radio City, right? And there's a lot of great material uh, in the various RCA and, and Sarnoff collections, right, related to Radio City. Um, I uh, I drew on the um, uh, the Margulies, the John Margulies mm. travel ephemera. Uh-huh. Uh, it's one of the, one of the things I was interested for one because they have things like brochures from like the NBC studio tours, you know, that you could do, you know, if you visited New York and you went to Rockefeller Center, right, uh, and uh, including, you know, in 
the mid to late 1930s, you know, a special television tour that they offered mm. uh, even before, you know, there was sort of regular television broadcasting um, available to the public. Right. And so that would have been one of the ways, right, where a lot of people f- first experienced TV, right, would have been going to New York taking one of these tours, right, and seeing, you know, a, uh, an experimental television show being produced, uh, seeing the other guests, you know, that were on this tour, uh, you know, standing in front of the camera, and then, you know, seeing, seeing those people, you know, on a screen and so on, right. And so, uh, you know, there was really great stuff in the Margulies collection. Uh, and then also another thing that I was really interested in, we kind of emerged out of looking at, at these, um, you know, kind of um, tourist maps of, of Midtown Manhattan and so on was to try to, you know, like gauge how the iconography of New York um, modern urbanism is in a lot of ways, you know, kind of reshaped during this period of time. And the way that like a place like Rockefeller Center is so, you know, kind of sent in Radio City has kind of become so central in terms of um, the representation of New York and what what it means to go to New York and where you want to go when you go to New York, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. So, so those ones were important. Um, the uh, also, you know, I found um, a lot of really useful uh, books and periodicals, right, that were just you know in in uh, that part of Hagley's collections that were related to um, Midtown Manhattan during that period of time and uh, and to Rockefeller Center also. Oh, that's great. And such a neat project. Uh, Rick, thank you very much for taking the time to share with us today. It's been great. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for, for having me on, Greg. And uh, and also, you know, thank you to the Hagley for, you know, the, the opportunities that have been extended to, you know, to use the collections. Oh, you're very welcome. And for the audience, if you would like more Hagley History Hangouts, more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, Reach us online. You can visit hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G. Don't be a stranger.